So tonight, I want to take you through a passage in Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 15. I'm just going to jump right into this passage, so I'll read it while you're turning there. Titus 2, verses 11 through 15. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Now, I want to start with a word about the context and the circumstances that prompted this epistle. Paul is writing to Titus, whom he has left in Crete so that Titus could set in order what remained and appoint elders in every city. That's chapter 1, verse 5. So Titus is training and appointing structured leadership for the churches in Crete. This has come up a lot recently because people say, oh, why don't you just break Grace Church up into small house churches, uh, like 2,000 of them, and, you know, let them do home Bible studies. For Paul, it was important that there be structured, qualified leadership, and it was Titus's duty in Crete to train and appoint elders to oversee the churches, uh, and he gives them a short list of qualifications for the men whom he's to appoint as elders in the churches. And this is essentially identical to the list given in 1 Timothy 3. There's two lists of qualifications for elders, and you can compare them side by side, and they're basically identical. They're not verbatim identical, but the ideas are thought for thought the same. Uh, And the central principle, of course, is that leaders in the church are God's stewards— In other words, they're managing God's possessions and specifically God's flock, and therefore they need to be morally and reputationally above reproach. Paul reiterates that same expression twice at the start of his list in chapter 1, verse 6, and again in verse 7. And he follows that with a list of specifics that spell out what it means to be above reproach. And I want you to notice, as you look at that list in chapter 1, that except for the ability to teach, which is a gift that is absolutely necessary to fulfill the calling of an elder, except for that, the requirements Paul names are not skills or talents. They're character qualities. And all all of them have to do with spiritual maturity, self-control, and moral rectitude. Uh, This is the kind of man who is qualified to lead the church. It's not because he's a skilled businessman, and he's not a clown or a comedian. He's not a a frat house bad boy or a super cool trendsetter with celebrity potential written all over him. That's what people look for in pastors today. He's not an entrepreneur or an innovator or a motivational speaker. He's not a guy with a huge ego and a a gift for being glib. There's nothing here about appealing to one generation or another. 
Nothing about his artistic ability, nothing about his educational degrees or political correctness or business acumen, nothing about clothing style or cleverness and creativity or even his knowledge of popular culture. That's a big thing with people today. In other words, the qualifications that the Bible gives for men in positions of leadership include none of the things, literally none of the things that churches today tend to weigh most heavily when they're looking for a pastor. And that's a rebuke to churches today, evangelicals today, and how we tend to think. But the elders that Titus was commanded to train and ordain simply needed to be mature, godly, disciplined men who were able to handle the Word of God accurately and to teach its truths to others. And obviously in Crete, there weren't seminary-educated men. So we're not talking about advanced theology here. They just needed to be able to open God's Word and teach from it accurately. Godly men who were both mature and steadfast in the faith. And if you grasp what Paul is saying here and, and just compare it to the typical 21st century church, it should cause a bit of cognitive dissonance. Because the strategy Paul is telling Titus to use in the church, especially he's talking here about church planting enterprise, what he's telling Titus to do is nothing at all like most of today's church planting organizations say is crucial, vital, necessary. And if you pay attention to trends in the evangelical movement today, you've probably noticed that these instructions simply are not being followed by most church leaders in the current generation. And I know know this is a bit of digression, but I've said this before and I want to say it again plainly. The greatest threats to the gospel today are not government policies that undermine our values, not secular beliefs that attack our confessions of faith, not even atheists who deny our God. But the greatest enemies of the gospel today are worldly churches and hireling pastors who trivialize Christianity. They're the worst problems we face in the church. And and that's not a new problem. That was true even in the apostolic times, in the very earliest churches. In Philippians 3, verses 18 and 19, the Apostle Paul wrote, for many walk, he's talking in the present tense, during his era, many walk, of whom I've often told you and now tell you, even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ. And one of the chief characteristics Paul named about these enemies of of the cross, enemies of authentic grace, was that they set their minds on earthly things. They perverted the grace of God into sensuality. They twisted the idea of Christian liberty into an opportunity to gratify the flesh. They used their freedom as a cover-up for evil, he says. And in the process, they trivialized the cross, they corrupted the idea of grace, and they perverted the gospel. And none of the apostles were ever squeamish when it came to pointing out and calling out people who were doing that. And here in our text, Paul actually employs the principle of grace itself to refute that sort of trivialized, worldly, lawless notion of religion. And he says that the true lessons we learn from grace, if you really understand the grace of God, the lesson 
flies in the face of everything that is shallow and worldly and unrighteous or disobedient or even everything that's merely passive in that sort of, you know, deeper life, let go and let God sort of way. Paul is against that. His idea of grace has nothing to do with that. And as a matter of fact, he is admonishing Titus not to give in to the trends of secular culture in Crete. Chapter 1, verse 12, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. And that, let's face it, that probably was not the politically correct thing to say even, in, even then. But Paul adds this emphatically. That testimony is true, he says. And therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. He's telling Titus that the church is supposed to be countercultural, resistant to the evils and the character flaws of secular society. Church leaders are not supposed to be obsessed with gaining accolades and admiration from the world. If we're worried about what the world thinks of us, we're not thinking in the New Testament sense. And instead, Paul says, teach what accords with sound doctrine. That's chapter 2, verse 1, the starting point of our chapter. And he goes on to give a series of commands for specific categories of people in the church. Uh, Older men, verse 2. Older women, likewise, verse 3. Young women, verse 4. Younger men, verse 6. And slaves, verse 9. And Titus, as the missionary planting pastor, is given a particular directive, verse 7, in all respects, you be a model of good works. Especially for the sake of those young men who represent future leaders in the church. That was Titus's task. Not only to ordain and train elders, but to be an example to those young men whom he was training to do that. Now notice, verse 1 speaks of what accords with sound doctrine, and then Paul goes on to itemize a short list of things that you and I would probably categorize as practical things, practical duties, rather than the types of things we would put in the doctrinal category, doctrinal truths. And you see, one of Paul's main points here is that he doesn't want Titus to spend all of his time teaching doctrine as theory and and focusing only on the objective, biblical, historical, theological content at the expense of exhorting the church to obedience and to practical holiness. And I'll be honest with you, I think that is a peculiar danger in my style of teaching. I do tend to take a didactic approach that's heavy on doctrine, material truth and objective doctrine, and, and, and frequently I have to remind myself that's not enough. Scripture is profitable for practical exhortation, and if you haven't, if you haven't learned what this text is urging you to do, you haven't really heard what the text is saying. If you listen merely with the ear of a scholar and not with the ear of a servant, you're not hearing Scripture correctly. And Paul's point is that the vital practical duties of holiness and obedience are perfectly in accord with sound doctrine. Calls to obedience and exhortation to virtue, that's, this is not inconsistent with the doctrines of grace. You sometimes hear that. People say, well, don't focus so much on the commands of Scripture, but 
Look at the promises and, and all that. Don't, don't give us the exhortations, but preach the gospel to us. And what Paul is saying here is that inherent in the gospel is an exhortation to good works. It doesn't teach us to trust our good works for our salvation, but ultimately we are saved unto good works. That's one of the main points he's making here. Good works are not inconsistent with the, with the idea of grace, much less are good works opposed to grace. And in the words of verse 10, what Paul has outlined in this chapter are actions and character qualities that actually adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. In other words, the gospel, the good news about Christ. Our good works adorn that doctrine. Three main lessons grace teaches us here is what you have. I see three distinct lessons that Paul says we can learn from the principle of grace. Three main lessons. They're hard lessons because, frankly, they run contrary to the natural tendencies of our fallen flesh. And so these are lessons we have to keep relearning every day. But here they are. Lesson number one, you can write these down if you want, three of them. Lesson number one, grace teaches us to repudiate the works of the flesh. Verses 11 and 12. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. Now, I need to comment on verse 11. We can't linger there, but obviously, uh, this is, a, tr- uh, this is a, a difficult text that we need to explain. It's not saying that grace has brought salvation to each and every person who ever lives because Jesus himself repeatedly and expressly taught that the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. That's Matthew 7, verse 13. And Jesus' descriptions of the final judgment always included urgent warnings that in that day, many people will be surprised to discover that they're lost. They will be told, depart from me, he said, you cursed into eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. So when Titus 2.11 says, grace has brought salvation to all men, This is not teaching any doctrine of universal salvation. Uh, The King James Version translates the text so that it says, the grace of God has appeared to all men. But here too, I think the majority of modern translations actually have it right. If you go back to the original Greek, the idea is salvation to all men. The ESV says salvation for all people. And that has to be read in its own context. Notice, in fact, the conjunction for, salvation for all people, and and also the for at the beginning of the verse. It ties the statement to what preceded it. And it's that long list of people categories, older men, older women, young women, uh, young men, and slaves. For, he says, tying it to those categories of people, for the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all kinds of people, all people, older men, old women, young girls, younger men, and slaves alike. That's the idea here. Training us all, all of us in every category and every age group, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. And this is the first lesson we learn under grace as our instructor to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. That is a direct quote from the NIV, and it's a pretty fair rendering of the sense of the text. 
the Greek word is a word that means to deny or to refuse or to disavow. And it's a strong word, just like the English word I gave you, repudiate. Not as strong, perhaps, as the word Paul occasionally uses elsewhere when he says mortify these things, meaning put them to death. Romans 8.13, put to death the deeds of the flesh. Colossians 3.5, put to death what is earthly in you. Galatians 5.24, crucify the flesh with its passions and desires. But the sense is exactly the same here. Repudiate ungodliness and worldly passions. How forcefully should we repudiate such things? Just go ahead and put them to death. Exterminate them. And that's the first lesson grace teaches us. It's what repentance is all about. It's why the starting point of our spiritual lives is repentance, a renunciation of sin. It's the total and unconditional disavowal of fleshly works and worldly desires, and this is not optional. The notion that repentance is optional is a it's a popular idea these days, sadly, but it isn't a biblical one. The first words of John the Baptist's sermons and the first words of Jesus' first sermon, repent. And if you think every appeal for repentance or holiness sounds like legalism, and if you declare any kind of appeal for holiness, someone's going to tell you, you're preaching law, not gospel. You're being legalistic. But if that's how you think, it sounds like legalism to call people to obedience, you've got a problem because Paul says here, that's what grace calls us to. And on the other hand, if you think that the actual remedy for defeat in the Christian life is just to double down and work harder at achieving holiness, if that's the way you think, you've also got a problem. And above all, you've got a skewed view of grace if you think grace eliminates any need for holiness. Like, because I'm under grace, I don't have to worry about holiness. That's turning grace into licentiousness. Whether you think that that brand of so-called free grace sounds dangerous or you think it sounds fun, if you think grace, the principle of grace, renders moot our moral duty, then you don't really understand grace. Contemporary Evangelicals, I think, are are dangerously susceptible to both legalism on the one hand and licentiousness on the other, because evangelicals have been toying for generations with a superficial understanding of grace. And the problem goes back, I think, more than a century. Grace was first degraded into a kind of escape hatch from hell, and then it was portrayed as a means of personal fulfillment. And nowadays, it's generally perceived as a principle that nullifies the need to do right or be right. And in fact, I've seen that definition of grace. Someone I interacted with on the internet said, this is my definition of grace. It's the elimination of the need or the desire to do right or be right. That's a corruption of grace. But I'm I'm tempted to say that may be the dominant contemporary evangelical attitude towards sanctification. We don't need to be right. It's a flat-out lie, and it is emphatically refuted by the Apostle Paul right here. The grace of God teaches us to renounce ungodliness. Now notice, this first lesson alone 
makes a stark contrast to the conventional notion of grace. Grace is not a syrupy sentiment that, that makes us always passive and positive. We use it that way sometimes. So full of grace, meaning he's just totally passive and always positive. You'll never hear a troubled or troublesome word from him. Never a rebuke, never an exhortation, just passivity. But grace itself is described in Scripture as something that's dynamic. It's the active expression of God's favor. It's undeserved favor. More than that, it's the exact opposite of what we do deserve. But it's a potent and powerful force, grace. By grace, God lays a hold of uh, undeserving sinners and unites them spiritually with Christ, then clothes them with the righteousness of Christ, awakens their soul from a state of spiritual deadness, removes their stony hearts, and gives them a living, tender heart of flesh, and then, on top of all of that, blesses them with every spiritual blessing. And the very first response God's grace elicits from a regenerate heart is a negative confession, a negative confession. We renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. In other words, the first motion of our repentance is a gift from God, a work of grace, and every aspect of authentic repentance is motivated and energized by grace so that the person who has never repented has not received grace. We, res- we, we often speak of irresistible grace, and I love that expression because it conveys the sense that grace is dynamic. It's not passive, but it's also subject to misunderstanding. When we say grace is irresistible, we don't mean that God uses his grace to employ some kind of coercion or, or uh, duress, you know, dragging us and arm-twisting us to accept Christ. Grace is, I've said this many times, grace is irresistible in the same, fu- the same way I find my wife irresistible. It's not that she threatens me or forces me to bend to her will, but that I am captivated by her in a positive way because of her inherent appeal to me. It's a dynamic thing. And in a similar but even more profound spiritual way, divine grace draws us to Christ by attraction, not by constraint, not by force. And if you've been drawn to Christ by grace, if you truly love him, you'll hate everything that opposes him. It's just the natural response. Just like I hate everything that would threaten my wife or come against her. Same thing. We love Christ in that similar sense. The grace that draws us to him teaches us to renounce those worldly passions and, and ungodliness that ultimately is, a, is a, uh, an insult to his grace and goodness and his glory. And that is, I think, the very same truth Paul has in mind in Romans chapter 2, verse 4, when he says that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. God's grace draws us, leads us, entices us to a state of repentance. You've heard of Martin Luther and how he nailed the 95 theses to the door of the castle church in Wittenberg. Listen to the very first of those 95 theses. We sometimes, if you've never read them, you might be tempted to think, 
Well, they're about justification by faith because that's what Luther is known for. But no, the 95 theses were all about repentance. And in the very first of those 95, he wrote this, quote, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, he called for the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. So we renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, not one time and then we're done, but we do that on a daily basis. And it's grace, properly understood, grace is what instructs us to repent at the beginning of our Christian life and then prompts and energizes daily repentance from then on. So that's lesson number one that we learn from grace, to repudiate the works of the flesh. Here's a second lesson if you're writing these down. Grace teaches us to cultivate the fruit of the Spirit, to repudiate the works of the flesh and to cultivate the fruit of the Spirit. Second half of verse 12, grace trains us to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Notice the threefold stress there on sobriety, righteousness, and godliness. The first term is from a Greek word that literally refers to soundness of mind. Its, its connotation is self-control or moderation. In the King James Version, it says soberly, and the New American Standard Bible says sensibly, and all of those ideas are inherent in the word. The ESV, which I've been reading, says self-controlled, and that's a decent English synonym to the idea, but, but it's a bigger idea than that. The idea is not merely temperance and moderation, but wisdom and prudence and circumspection, clarity of mind. It's describing a a virtue whose chief benefit accrues to the individual himself. In other words, grace trains us to be clear-headed and to exercise cautious self-control. And the second term then describes a virtue that defines our relationship to others. So the first one deals with me and a benefit that accrues to me. The second one is about my relationship to others. Grace trains us to live righteously. And the ESV and the NIV use the word upright. I looked this up, and to quote the great Baptist theologian John Gill, he said, this speaks of living, quote, righteously among men, giving to every man his due, and dealing with all according to the rules of equity and justice, Uh uh-oh, I lost my notes, equity and justice as being made new men, created unto righteousness and true holiness, and as being dead to sin through the death of Christ, and so living unto righteousness, or in a righteous manner, and as being justified by the righteousness of Christ revealed in the gospel. He's very wordy, but he's wanting to be comprehensive. And he's saying, this starts, you know, you hear a lot today about social justice. This is the true social justice. It starts with how we treat one another righteously, but it also embraces even the righteousness that's imputed to us from Christ, so that we are people known by our righteousness. It covers every dimension of righteousness, both the practical kind and the forensic kind. But because the context here is about how we live our lives, I think the stress Paul has in mind here is on how we deal with our fellow human beings. Upright, honesty, uh, fairness, equity, all of those ideas. This is the fruit of how grace trains us to behave. And then the third term here, godly, 
by definition, that one has a Godward focus. So grace teaches us our duty with respect to God, with respect to our neighbor, and with respect to ourselves. Keep that in mind. We'll come back to it. This third word, godly, is an adjective that would be a synonym of the word pious. We, we use that word pious sometimes in a negative way, but there is a positive sense to it. The Greek word is etymologically the exact opposite of the word that's translated ungodliness earlier in the verse. Ungodliness is asebia. Godly is eusebos. They, they have the same root. Uh, they are the negative and positive forms of the very same idea. So grace teaches us to shun impiety and to live piously. It's all very simple and straightforward here. Paul is not giving Titus some mysterious, complex idea. The idea is quite simple. Grace, which he's talking about authentic biblical grace, not the shabby evangelical substitute, but, but the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ teaches us to repudiate the works of the flesh and to cultivate the fruit of the Spirit. And Paul teaches this very same idea in Galatians 5, where he contrasts the works of the flesh with the fruit of the Spirit. I would read you that long passage, but that would get us off on a rabbit trail that would keep us here all night. But look it up in Galatians 5. He has a similar section that contrasts the works of the flesh, which are all evil, to the fruit of the Spirit, which are all, which are all what godliness consists of. And what we do, what defines us as Christians is this very thing, that we do repudiate the works of the flesh so that grace, not the law, but grace is what trains us and motivates us and what the law could not do, empowers us to live righteously. And at the same time, grace teaches us to cultivate the fruit of the Spirit. So lessons one and two that we learn in the School of Grace, number one, repudiate the works of the flesh. Number two, cultivate the fruit of the Spirit. And now third, finally, to anticipate the blessedness of eternity. And here he has the forward work. And by the way, this is the key distinction between law and grace. I've told you before, law and grace are different principles. They have different aims, but they are not in conflict with one another. They don't contradict one another but they're different. And this is the key distinction between law and grace. For any thoughtful, self-aware, honest worshiper, the effect of the law alone, apart from grace, should be sheer terror. Because all the law can do is threaten you with utter destruction, because we're all sinners. But grace, by contrast, fills us with expectation and anticipation for blessings that will last through eternity. Verse 13, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. In short, I'll say it like this for the seminary students, the eschatology of grace is different from the eschatology of law, where the law pronounces condemnation and and swears eternal vengeance. Grace instead pronounces a blessing and promises eternal reward. So grace then teaches us to live in the light of that hope, the blessed hope. It's a, definitely a blessed hope. 
And all the lessons grace teaches us are therefore incentives for holiness, our hatred of unrighteousness, the debt we owe to Christ's righteousness, the reward we're promised in eternity. All of those things should be incentives for us to renounce ungodliness and and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. And notice, this was the aim of Christ when he redeemed us in the first place. Verse 14, he gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Now, don't tell me that there's anything inherently legalistic about being zealous for good works. And don't tell me that grace rules out any mention of good works. Zeal for good works is the ultimate objective of grace. Now, bear in mind, this passage covers all tenses and all perspectives, past, present, and future, and as I said earlier, self, others, and God. Every perspective and every tense. And in every respect except one, the lessons of grace are in perfect agreement with what the law tells us. They both say the same thing. As I said, they're not contradictory. Both law and grace say that we should renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. Both law and grace tell us that we should live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Both law and grace humble us and show us the virtue of self-control. Both law and grace say that we should live righteously and love our neighbor as we love ourselves. Both law and grace instruct us to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And in every respect, grace is in absolute agreement with the commands and directives of the eternal moral law of God. Don't ever think that, that law and grace or law and gospel contradict one another, or that grace somehow utterly overthrows the law so that it's null and void and unimportant anymore. But there is one vital distinction between law and grace, and the difference lies in this third lesson. The law threatens us with destruction because we can't obey it perfectly. Grace gives us both the desire and the power to obey. That's precisely what Philippians 2.13 says. It is God who works in you both to will the desire and to work the power for for his good pleasure. So the will and the energy to obey God are gracious gifts that come from God. And so while the law and grace agree in that they both urge us to be holy, the law can only condemn us for our failure and threaten us with destruction. Grace turns out to be the remedy for our failure, and it guarantees eternal blessing. And the one key difference, to put it as succinctly as possible, the one key difference is that the law can't give life. It can only bring death. 2 Corinthians 3, 6, the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. We're saved through sanctification by the Spirit, according to 2 Thessalonians 2, 13. The gracious work of the Spirit of God in our hearts is what guarantees our life and our sanctification. Listen to Romans 8, verses 3 and 4. God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh 
and what? Thereby, he overturned and, and eliminated the moral imperatives of the law? No. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So the distinction between law and grace has nothing to do with the Ten Commandments or the moral content of the law. What grace eliminates and overturns are the curses of the law. As far as the moral imperatives of the law are concerned, grace is in full agreement with those. Paul says so expressly in Galatians 3, verse 6. Is the law contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not, for if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. That's Galatians 3, 21. The problem with the law was our inability and our lack of desire to will and to work for God's good pleasure, and grace is the remedy for that. And the result, verse 14 that we should be redeemed from all lawlessness and purified for Christ, a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. And there is nothing the least bit legalistic about that zeal. Cultivate it. You better have it. The command Paul gives Titus in verse 15 has implications not only for those of us who teach, but also for every one of you as you encourage and admonish one another. This is a command for all of us. Declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority and let no one disregard you. Let's pray. Father, we confess, first of all, our absolute unworthiness to be recipients of your grace and your favor. We're sinners with nothing to commend ourselves to you. But even in confessing that, we acknowledge our desperate need for grace, not just a one-time pardon for past sins. We need grace every day, moment by moment, because that is the only thing that can sustain us. Your Word says you give more grace, and we do plead, Lord, that you would multiply your grace both individually to us and as a fellowship group. Make us receptive to these lessons that grace teaches us. And we confess we can't even do that apart from the outpouring of your grace. So keep us mindful of our our dependence on grace. And may we always live soberly and righteously and godly in this present era as we await the return of our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen.